Matthew chapter 6. This is the inerrant word of God. Beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Father in heaven, this is your living word. We here are your people by your grace. We are your children, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Fill us with your spirit, that we might understand and apply your precious word, and grow as obedient disciples, as living sacrifices. For we ask this in the name of our Savior, and our Lord, and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, many of you have seen the subscript, uh, you know, people have subscripts at the bottom of their email, and... Uh, I like Dave Lane's subscript, at least the one he used to have. This is the one Dave used to have. Many of you have seen this, I think. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, live your life in such a way that every morning when your feet hit the floor, Satan shudders and says, oh no, he's awake. <laughs> I love that. You know Dave, why he would choose that? Uh, and I got a, an email uh, not too long ago, from a friend, and there's another quote. It was related to what Dave, uh, this, uh, related to that subscript, and so I sent it to Dave, and so now this is his new subscript. This is by um, C.T. Studd, who was a missionary from England uh, in the 1800s, I believe, who went to Africa. Let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. <laughs> May it be so. May it be so. And uh, then there's Brandon Miller. He's being a good southern young gentleman, at least in heart. Being the good southern gentleman that he is, his subscript is uh, from General Jeb Stewart. And it says, believe that you can whip the enemy and you've won half the battle. Brothers and sisters, we can have true power and victory and joy on the field of battle, which we're in, through prayer. And only through prayer. And going forth to, to battle without prayer as a believer is kind of like running at the enemy lines uh, with no weapon and no protection. That's what we're doing without prayer. William Cowper said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Now, brothers and sisters, you may feel weak in your prayer life. Well, join the club. You may feel weak, but you have great power in prayer on your knees. So let's work to grow uh, our prayer life. That's the purpose of 
uh, this year, actually, as I will share in a minute, purpose of this message. Now, there are a lot of good books on prayer, I found out. Uh, I have many on my shelf, most of which I've read, uh, but I just typed into Amazon. I was kind of curious, well, how important is prayer? I, maybe that's not the best way to decide that, but I typed it in on Amazon, prayer. I got 100 pages. There are 12 listings on a page. I got 100 pages of books or articles or things on prayer. Okay? So apparently, prayer is, there's great interest in prayer. Possibly that's one reason. Or we all know that there's a great need to learn about prayer. My guess is it's more, more of the second. So the purpose of prayer is clear in the Word of God. And it's, it's assumed, really. As disciples, we are called to pray. That's what we do. It's like breathing. Now, the Shorter Catechism begins, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I would say to you that the purpose of prayer is the same, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Prayer honors our Lord and brings us joy. Two verses that relate to this in John chapter 14, the Lord said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There is a prayer to believe and pray. And then in John 16, it says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So we can honor the Lord and glorify him and enjoy him forever. Our joy might be full. Now the purpose of prayer, that is the purpose of prayer basically, but the foundation of prayer is the saving grace that we have in Jesus Christ. And this allows us to come boldly before his throne, uh, daily, constantly, uh, through our Lord Jesus. Octavius Winslow said this about prayer. It is one of the most costly blessings flowing from the vital power of the atoning blood of the risen and living Savior. Again, it's one of the most costly blessings. It costs more than we can fathom that we can come before the Lord in prayer. This is why we pray, too, in his name. We pray in his name because we are only able to come before him because of his sacrificial atonement, only for that reason. Jonathan Edwards, in, regarding the centrality of Christ in prayer, this is what Jonathan Edwards said, three things, actually. Christ defines our agenda in prayer. He defines our agenda in prayer. We'll see that clear, very clearly in the Lord's Prayer. So he defines our agenda in prayer. He opens up the door to heaven to present our prayers, He's our intercessor. And then Christ is the ultimate answer to all our prayers. Christ is central to prayer. So prayer is also an evidence of grace uh, because we wouldn't desire to pray at all. We wouldn't uh, desire his will. We wouldn't uh, come before him. We wouldn't grow in our prayer life without grace. Without his grace, we would not uh, be able to, not, not desire to. And then prayer is a means of grace, as are the word and the sacraments, which we've already enjoyed greatly this day. Uh, prayer is a means of grace, and we know his grace more fully as we come before him in prayer. Now, one of the best definitions of prayer that I have found, meaning, for me, anyway, it's brief, it's clear, and it's memorable, is from the Westminster Catechism. And I have kind of uh, combined the larger catechism and the, and the shorter here, but this is in your notes. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will. In the name of Christ, by the help of his spirit, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. It's an offering up of our desires to God. 
for things agreeable to his will. And we'll touch on some of these things today, and we will touch on it actually more through this year, Lord willing. Now a question I'd like to ask you, how can we so often turn down the riches, this kind of grace, the riches of his grace, by prayerlessness? How can we so often do that? We all know by experience. I won't ask you, but I know by experience. All of you know that it's not easy to pray. We have to overcome some things, it seems like, every time, every time we pray. And there are hindrances to prayer that we must be aware of. There, there's unrepented sin, there's unforgiveness of others, there's selfishness, there's just plain uh, laziness, uh, there's unbelief. And basically, the world and the flesh and the enemy are doing everything they can to keep us from a life of prayer. And D.A. Carson has this to say about the, the discipline in prayer. I read something, he had a long part, but this quote was excellent. He said, people do not drift toward holiness. We don't do that. We don't drift toward holiness. Apart from effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. They don't gravitate toward prayer or obedience to scripture or faith or delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and we call it faith. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. That's what we do. We just don't drift toward prayer and it's so easy to justify prayerlessness. And yet, the, effective, the effectiveness of all, all we do as Christians, individually, as a church, in our families, of any ministry that we hope to have, that we long to have, is connected with prayer. And Phil and Rodney and I have, uh, over the past several months, been praying and asking the Lord to lead us regarding the goals, which we'll hand out in a couple of weeks, well, next week, actually, I'll hand those out, the goals for 2013. And really, there are only two this year. We're learning. We don't have 15 like we usually have. We have two. The first one is, you can probably guess, is to grow in prayer as a church. And that this will be the beginning, this will be the beginning of a revival of prayer in this church. We can't do anything without it, brothers and sisters, and without which we cannot please him also. And then our other goal is to uh, pray for, of course, and work for effective and active outreach. That is by God's grace. That will be by the power of prayer. Not by our efforts, not by our flesh. And can we do these things in the flesh? Sure, we have a lot, often, all too often. But in that case, whose glory were we seeking? Isaiah says, my glory I will give to no other. So prayer is fundamental. It's not supplemental. This might be one of the main points today. Prayer is fundamental. It's not supplemental. And yet, when the church is weak, and when we are weak individually, uh, it's at least in part, if not a large in part, a large part, because we have reversed this. Prayer has become supplemental. It's something that we do when we have time, when, uh, you know, we, have other, we, we don't have other things to do, when we can fit it in, when it's convenient. It's something we don't discipline, but it's actually fundamental to our walk with him and our growth as a church here, and our effectiveness in ministry, any ministry. And those things done in our power and for our glory, because we don't pray, will not honor the Lord or effectively build his kingdom. And how can the Lord answer us and bless us if we do not pray and exalt him, seek his will? Now we can do a lot of good and biblical things, 
But without prayer, we are seeking the glory. More than likely, we are seeking the glory. We are working in the flesh, and we are not recognizing God's sovereignty and our utter dependence on him. But praise God, the Lord has given us a model here on how to pray and for what to pray. He is our example in all things. He is our mentor, and he's given us this great blessing in the word. And he gave us the Lord's Prayer, and many call it the Disciples' Prayer. It's probably more appropriate to call it that. He gave it to the disciples during the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount was given to teach his disciples how to live in and how to live for the kingdom of Christ. So before giving them the model, Jesus began teaching his disciples by addressing basically, I believe, three issues, verses 5 through 7. In verse 5, first of all, it's on sincerity in prayer. Sincerity in prayer. Verse 6 is on secrecy in prayer. And verse 7, I'm sorry, is simplicity in prayer. So sincerity, secrecy, simplicity. Verse 5 says, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing on the, in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So they love being noticed. Hypocrites, you remember, Phil, a number of times, maybe Rodney, uh, the, word, the Greek word hypocrite actually means actor. It's people who wore masks. And they wore that to hide their true selves. That's what hypocrites are. They hide them, their true selves. And uh, Now, actors are showy on purpose. That's what they're supposed to do. They're actors. Uh, but hypocrites are people who, uh, and, and these actors were pretending to be someone they, they weren't, really. In Matthew 22, this is about the Pharisees, Jesus said, all their works they do to be seen by men. All their works they do to be seen by men. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. Now, they purposely would walk around. As they were walking around, uh, the, the Jewish people had regular times of prayer. And during that t- when that time of prayer came, people were supposed to stop and, and pray. So I think they probably calculated, well, time of prayer is coming up. Uh, there's a street corner over there. I'll end up there. I'll end up on the, uh, somewhere where I'll be noticed. And that's what they did. They were ostentatious. You all know that word? You know, they're conspicuous. They wanted to be conspicuous to impress others. They were trying to get attention, trying to get approval. And uh, so they did get a reward. They got a reward, it says, uh, but they settled for a reward much of much less value than they could have had. They, they got fleeting recognition. They didn't get the acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus. Now, again, about the Pharisees, who were examples of hypocrites, often in the New Testament, the Lord said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. They honor me with their lips, and they're probably saying some good things, but their heart is far from me. So they were good actors, outwardly. But the Lord looks on the heart, doesn't he? He looks on the heart. And words with no heart do not please the Lord. In fact, in Romans 8, it tells us that even if we can't find the words to say, in Romans 8, that um, the Spirit, it says, also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So even if we can't find the words, we're crying out to God from our heart through the Holy Spirit, and he guides us. And it's like the parable about the tax collector in uh, Luke 18, or the publican. He, um, you remember him, he had very few words to say. And 
normally, uh, in fact, the, the person next to him, the Pharisee, was uh, looking up probably the standard way of praying. He's looking up and praying like that. But this man couldn't even do that. He was contrite. He was humble. He could only say a few words, and he beat his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he could say. But what did the Lord say about him? He said, this man is going down to his house justified or forgiven. Not the other man who spoke, by the way, five times as many words the, the uh, Pharisee did. And that, about the Pharisee, it says, he prayed with himself. He wasn't even praying to God. A great show. He prayed with himself. Maybe he was impressed with himself. Now, our Lord desires and deserves sincere, heartfelt prayer. And then in verse 6, but you, when you pray, and notice that it's assumed that disciples of Christ pray. When you pray, disciples, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret or the hidden place, and your Father in heaven, your Father who sees uh, in secret, will reward you openly. Now, this is not excluding uh, public or corporate prayer. Uh, because that's commanded in other places in Scripture. But it is excluding public shows of piety, public shows of piety, which appear to be private devotion. You know, prayer is not a form of evangelism. It's addressed to God. It's not a performance. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will. And so going into your room, I, I read a few commentaries. I learned a lot about Palestinian homes. It's kind of interesting uh, but uh, most, most Palestinian homes were pretty small, and a lot of times there's only one room. Didn't have many doors either, because there weren't many rooms, so might have had one door. Um, but uh, it turns out that if there was a, a, a room you could get alone in, it was a supply room that you could lock from the inside, so obviously, unless, unless others went in with you, you, you were by yourself in this little supply room, which is, they put stuff there they didn't want to get ripped off. Uh, but you're really by yourself. But in any case, we can pray wherever we are. We can pray anywhere. And it's best to learn to pray and to grow in heartfelt prayer and individually with God alone. Private secret prayer is the foundation of public and communal prayer. And it's all to be given to him, of course. And we learn to do that in private first. So we should go to, as much as possible into our secret room or our hidden a place, a private place to meet with the Lord. And then our reward will be great. In fact, it will be eternal. Verse 7, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. You know, the Lord is not impressed with the number of words that we say or our eloquence. You know, we might impress people that way. We might, uh, but not the Lord. In Isaiah 66, I believe I shared maybe three weeks ago in a meditation that uh, the Lord was speaking about creation. And he said, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things are mine, says the Lord, or all these things exist because of me. But this is the man to whom I will look, he who is a contrite and of a humble spirit and trembles at my word. And I was referring to the trembling part there. But in this case, he's looking for men and women who are contrite in heart. They're humble. And who will pray according to his word, led by his spirit. Now the pagan cultures at that time, in fact, the pagan cultures now, uh, they believe that uh, by incessant talking, you basically get the attention of your God. And so they would plead. And you remember the prophets of Baal, they even beat themselves. And Seneca, the Greek philosopher, he was teaching all his students, this is what he taught them, to, quote, fatigue the gods with verbosity. You get them tired enough, they might hear you. Brothers and sisters, our God is paying attention to us. 
In Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. He is waiting for us to call upon him. Romans 8, 32, he who, he who did not spare his own son, who delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Yeah, indeed. How will he not also freely give us all things? He knows all things anyway. He knows what we're going to ask before we speak, but we must pray according to his will in the scriptures, and that is not necessarily done with many words. Charles Spurgeon said this in his usual way of giving quips. He said, Christians' prayers are measured by weight, not by length. I think that's great. Christian prayers are measured by weight, not by length. Many of the most prevailing prayers have been as short as they were strong. In Luke 18, there's the parable of the persistent or the importunate widow. You remember that? I'll read this briefly. You can look it up it's in, if you'd like. Luke 18, 1 through 7. And Jesus said, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man or this woman, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And then, this is what the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? Yes, indeed he will. Our Heavenly Father hears the cry of his elect. And we should still be persistent in prayer, of course, and consistent in it, but know that he hears us and not lose heart. So we don't need to use a lot of words or repeated phrases or empty ritual. In fact, this prayer should not be said in empty ritual. I often, I grew up in, in the church that I grew up in. I learned this at a young age and we said it every Sunday. How many times have I said this prayer? But I didn't say it with my heart. We need to pray with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength like David does in the Psalms. And if you're not sure how to pray that way, turn to the Psalms and ask the Lord to lead you as you pray through the Psalms of David. In Matthew 7, the Lord said, What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Martin Luther kind of summed up all of this. Um, he said, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance but laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. God is not reluctant, brothers and sisters. We should lay hold of his willingness. And so verses 5 through 7 are basically teaching us, again, about prayer being with sincerity, with uh, secrecy or with true devotion, and with simplicity. Verse 8 goes on. Therefore, do not be like them. This is the third time he said that. Don't be like the hypocrites. For your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. In Matthew 6, later on in Matthew 6, it says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So you might ask, I suppose, why then do we need to ask Him? Well, Phil shared a little bit about that uh, several weeks, I believe, ago it was. But basically, we must ask Him because He is the source of our life. And His glory He will give to no other. In John 15, we're called His branches. Jesus is the vine, we are His branches. Our life comes from Him. And we can do nothing without him. 
So to, to abide in him, we must pray. And if we're not praying, we're acting as if we don't really believe that in him we live and move and have our being. That's the way we're acting if we're not praying. Now, there are many blessings, of course, that God gives us in his grace. We don't ask for them specifically. Uh, but as a, a loving father with his children, he desires to be entreated by his children. And we are encouraged to ask and to seek and to knock, to be bold in coming before the throne. And so asking involves an exercise of faith, really. And his desire is that we grow in this childlike faith and trust in him and grow in our relationship as children to our Heavenly Father. He is omniscient. He knows all things. And our requests are somehow entwined with that sovereign knowledge. So with those admonitions, verses 5 through 8, the Lord then gives his disciples, he gives us the pattern that we are to use to develop our prayer life. This isn't, we just don't say this. It's not magic words. This is to develop our prayer life. C.S. Lewis had an interesting illustration about this. He, he likened it to a Christmas tree where the boughs of the tree are the lines or the petitions of the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, and the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, our personal prayers are like the ornaments kind of hung on there. It's a good picture of the Lord's Prayer. And then in verse 9, it says, In this manner, therefore, pray. And since we don't know how to pray, uh, as we ought, according to Romans 8, we must learn from this pattern, guided by the Holy Spirit, and informed from the rest of scriptures. All of scriptures should inform us uh, in, in this, about this pattern, how to pray it. And praise God that we not only have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous, enabling us to pray, but we have an advocate within us on earth, the Holy Spirit, giving us confidence and ability and the power to pray and praise God. We have a pattern, so we have the pattern of prayer and we have the power to pray. So let's pray, brothers and sisters. Now, first of all, some general observations. Um, this prayer is simple. It's not complex. It's not hard to grasp. It's uh, brief. It's not long. It's fairly short, actually. It's not hard to go through. And it's comprehensive, which I will share a bit in a minute how comprehensive it is. It really covers a lot, even though it's very short. And it has three parts. It has a preface, it has two sets of three petitions, and then a conclusion. And this structure is similar to the Ten Commandments, where we're instructed first about the true worship of the living God, and then about how we serve him. So this, the disciples' prayer, concerns God himself first, and the, you know, his kingdom and his will uh, before our needs. So this is the right order. And everything in our lives should be seen in that order, in that relationship to him first. But as you all know, and you all realize, this kind of goes against our natural impulse. Our natural inclination is to focus on our needs first. So you jump into prayer and start asking. Not that you're not supposed to ask. And sometimes you have to ask that way. Sometimes you only have time to cry out that way. But generally, in your prayer life, uh, it should be different than that. You should be focusing on the Lord first. And in my prayer life, uh, especially since I've studied this, but uh, recently I've been trying to uh, focus on adoring the living God first. Adoring him first. Praising him for who he is. And then, uh, and also in my family prayer, I will do the same. Uh, adore him first and then bring him my requests. So it begins, Our Father in Heaven. And we begin this prayer realizing the necessity for our relationship with our Father. So by repentance and faith, we have been justified, we've been adopted into the family of God by his grace. And so God, our Father, is imminent. He's imminent. 
And as our Father in heaven, he's also transcendent. He's high and holy and lifted up. In Isaiah 57, it says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And some versions say, And also with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. This is the almighty God who is imminent. He's near us. And yet he's transcendent. He's far above all that we can understand. He dwells in unapproachable light. Yet we can come to him at any time. And we have immediate, immediate access to him as children to a father through our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, that does not diminish our need to worship him with reverence and awe and godly fear. At the same time, he is uh, love and he is holiness. And as his children, we should address him uh, lovingly as a father and with great reverence due to a holy God. So the petitions, the first three petitions are all your petitions. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So the first set of the three petitions, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now the word here, I think many of you know, means holy. It means separate or distinct, different. So this phrase is kind of like saying, let God's name be different than all other names. And it should be. And it should be given a position which is absolutely unique. So we are here praying that we and those around us uh, give to God with our lips and our heart and our actions the reverence and the position which his character and his nature deserve and demand. We are, in a sense, asking for his grace to do this. In fact, all through this we're asking for his grace to enable us to know him, that is, to know his character, to know him as a person and to highly esteem him. And thus we're also, by implication, <clears throat> we're also praying that God would destroy all idolatry and everything which dishonors him and dishonors his name. So practically, we should be using, uh, usually be, begin our prayer, I'm sorry, with the worship of who our Father is. And uh, we are helped, I believe, greatly helped, when we recall and say his names as we pray. So we should pray. We should know them and we should pray them. We should know it. Adonai and El Shaddai, Elohim and Jehovah, uh, many times used here uh, by Pastor Phil. And uh, we should know the names of our Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You can make lists of these and use them in your prayer time. It's a great blessing and an honor to his name. So praying, hallowed be your name, means to pray that our God be adored and honored and sanctified, glorified, magnified. And uh, his name is hallowed when we acknowledge his royal rule, which we do when we say, your kingdom come. Now, in this case, I believe we're praying several things. We're praying, first of all, that Satan's kingdom would be further uh, destroyed. It's being destroyed. And God's people would not uh, fall to his deceptions. So we're praying that. Uh, we're also praying, or could be praying, that the true and the lasting kingdom, of which Jesus is king, the kingdom of grace, it's often called, that the kingdom of grace would advance and be extended. And then uh, thirdly, uh, we're praying that the kingdom of glory would come soon. Now regarding the kingdom of grace, we are also praying that uh, the gospel would be spread uh, on earth and that the church would be victorious on earth and that Jesus Christ would rule in the hearts of men as we look to his coming. So all men are ruled, if you will, on the outside by his absolute sovereign will. And some men, some men and women are ruled on the inside by his Holy Spirit. And we can pray for the increase of this reign in the hearts of men 
and that the gospel would be proclaimed in all nations. Verse 10 continues, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now here we're praying to bring heaven where God's will is done perfectly to earth. And our truest joy is when we are living in the center of his will and we have submitted to doing his will. And we are here asking also that we be enabled, by, again, by his grace uh, to know his will, to know it and to obey it. And like the angels in heaven and like the heavenly hosts of the redeemed who have gone before us, uh, that they are doing now. They are doing his will perfectly. Rodney read this morning from Colossians 2, one thing we can pray for each other is that we'll be filled with the knowledge of his will. We should be praying that for each other. We should be praying that we will be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, the prayer that his kingdom come is connected with this prayer, obviously, and that his will be done, because the second petition here is a means to the fulfillment of the first, that his will would be done so that his kingdom will advance. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Sometimes that is called God's decretive will. It's based on his decrees. It's his eternal plan. And the things that are revealed uh, are often called his preceptive will, based on his precepts, his word, the, the scriptures that we have. In Ephesians 1, it says he works all things according to the counsel of his will, his, by his decrees, before time began. And he has given us his word, his revelation, to know how to please him and to know his law, his precepts. They're revealed to us and to our children forever. And so we may know and do his will. It is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And we are praying here that the Father's will would be done as completely and as eagerly and as zealously on earth by us as it is being done by all the inhabitants of heaven. Now the second set of three petitions moves from your, <coughs> excuse me, your prayers to us prayers. Give us this, our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Now here we see that God knows what we need. And he wants us to come to him for them. He knows we need bread and daily provisions, physical sustenance to live in the present. At the end of Matthew 6, we also said, your heavenly father knows what you need. He knows you need food and drink and clothing. He also knows we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. We need to know freedom from the burden of sin from, from past, things we've done in the past. From, so there's present and past. And he knows that we need grace to be spared from the temptation uh, that is coming, uh, that from the work of our enemy against us in the future. So there's present and past and future. And again, I mentioned that this prayer is comprehensive. It is very comprehensive. Just as in the Ten Commandments, we can work out our whole duty to God. Uh, here, in this prayer, we can work out our whole prayer life, really, from this model of prayer. And not only does this prayer bring everything in our lives, past, present, and future, uh, before our God, but it also brings everything, all of God, the whole of God, into our lives. You know, we ask for bread, and uh, this directs us to our loving Heavenly Father, who is our sustainer and our provider. And we ask for help. I'm sorry, we ask for forgiveness, uh, which points us to the work of the Son of God as our Redeemer and our Savior. And then we ask for help with future temptation, which turns our thoughts to the Holy Spirit, our Counselor and our Comforter. So again, the Disciples' Prayer is simple, it's brief, it's comprehensive. 
It talks about all of our lives, past, present, and future, anything you can think about in those times. And we're bringing all of that to him, to all of him, all of who he is. And then verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Here we're praying basically for the things we need, necessary to live. And not only for ourselves, but for others, of course. It says, give us this day our daily bread. And we're admitting here that he is our provider. We're praying, Lord, give us today what is needed for any one day, for one day. We're not praying for, uh, necessarily, we're not praying for luxuries, certainly. But essentially, we're praying in a daily manner. Realizing that daily, we are dependent on our living God. In Proverbs 30, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And we can grow in faith and trust and thankfulness and contentment as we pray for our daily needs. And also, we should pray and trust him as our sustainer uh, so we won't worry. Worry is sin. We won't worry about the future. You know, like the Israelites in the wilderness uh, who daily depended on God for food, uh, they gathered only enough uh, for that day. And so we should praise him, even if we have a lot of food stored in our cupboards, and we should praise him daily as we, uh, as we know he has provided that. We should praise him each day, usually before each meal, of course, and not take his daily provision for granted. It's easy to do that in the United States. We can buy a week's worth of food, we can buy a month's worth of food, you can buy a year's worth of food if you have a place to put it. Now this prayer uh, reminds us again that we are totally dependent on God and on his providence for all things, even the jobs which enable us to buy these things that he's given us. We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and we do that through prayer. We do that through obedience. And then know that all the things that he gives us to sustain us will be ours as a gift from him. As our, from our Father in heaven. Verse 12 says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And here we're praying about our spiritual needs. And just as we prayed uh, about our daily uh, physical needs and sustenance, here we're praying for daily forgiveness. We're, we're admitting again here that we are sinners, and so we are asking that God, uh, for the sake of Christ, would pardon our sins, and then because of his grace in Christ, that we would forgive others from our heart. Now, we need to remember daily who paid our debt. I think we go far too long without remembering that and the cost of this payment, so we will more readily forgive others. In Ephesians 4, we're commanded. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And brothers and sisters, you can't do that without the grace of God. Only the power of the Lord Jesus through his Spirit enables us to forgive others as we have been forgiven. And we should be very careful, I believe, in just saying the words, the, especially these words, forgive us our debts. We can just, we, and we will pray the Lord's Prayer at the end of our, this time. But if we are harboring unforgiveness against a brother or sister in Christ, here especially, we won't know the joy of forgiveness if we do not forgive them. Peter asked the Lord, you know, how many times should I forgive this person who sins against me? And the Lord kind of blew him away by saying, well, it was not just 70 times, seven times, it was 77 times. So our forgiveness of other people should reflect the amazing and the boundless grace of God in forgiving us through Jesus Christ our Lord, by his grace. Verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So having just prayed that the guilt of our sin be removed, it's fitting for us to pray that we would not be tempted to return to that sin. 
And here we are praying that the Lord would keep us, that he'd protect us from uh, not only temptations, but test, uh, trials uh, from sin, and then to support us when we are tested and to use those trials for our growth and holiness. Now, we are all prone, of course, to go astray. So we're here seeking his grace again to subdue our sinful tendencies and bring us quickly to repentance and restoration and to deliver us from and strengthen us from the attacks of the enemy. We should never take a light view of temptation. Never. Or trust in our own strength to deal with it. That's just foolish self-confidence. Rush Dooney had a quote, and he said, It is man in his self-sufficiency who is most susceptible to temptation. It is man in his self-sufficiency who is most susceptible to temptation. If you have inklings of self-sufficiency in dealing with your own sin, you are most susceptible to temptation. And this petition, brothers and sisters, is for weak sinners who do not trust themselves to have the victory. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, if you haven't memorized that, you should. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation it will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it or to endure it. So as we began, we see that the battle over temptation and sin, in other words, the world and the flesh and the devil, uh, is already half won if we pray earnestly and consistently from the heart for God's grace to flee from sin and to hate our sin and overcome the evil one. And the conclusion is, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So as we mentioned about the purpose of prayer in the beginning, that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this prayer also concludes with a doxology by giving all glory to the Lord. And this is a model, as the model of prayer began by looking up to our Father in heaven, so we conclude by looking up in adoration in this time. We're in adoration of who our God is, and confident that our prayers will be heard. His is the eternal kingdom. He has all power to hear and answer prayer. And he will be glorified in all things, including our prayer. For of him and through him and to him are all things, and be glory forever. Amen. In First Chronicles 29, 11, which is very similar, it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Now, William Carey, I think everybody here knows who William Carey is. If you don't, you're going to hear a lot about him probably at the next PHF, which is on, uh, on mission. William Carey, the father of modern missions. He said this, you've heard it many times, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And he was a man of prayer. And he knew that we won't expect great things from God if we do not pray. And we won't attempt great things from, for, God, uh, for God. We won't achieve them, certainly, without prayer. Our God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. But he wants us to learn to ask. In the Valley of Vision, which again, if you have struggle with uh, praying, pouring out your heart, take that book out. I think every family here has that. In the Valley of Vision, it says, I can only succeed when I pray according to your precepts and promises, not only to desire small things, but with holy boldness to desire great things for thy people. Are we praying that way? Do we know who we're praying to when we pray? 
Every year for the past three years, I believe, I have given those 10 questions that are on the back of your notes. I think I've sent that out for the past three or maybe four years. I don't know. You're probably getting tired of having it. But too bad. I'll give it to you again. And if you would look at that just for a minute. This is from uh, Don Whitney. He wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. In question one, it says, What one thing could you do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? Pray. If you don't know what else to say, pray. If you want to enjoy God, pour out your heart to him in prayer. Number three says, what's the single most important thing you could do to improve the quality of your family life this year? Pray with them and for them. In which spiritual discipline, number four, do you want, most want to make progress this year, and what will you do about it? Well, certainly the disciplines that uh, relate to the intake of the word and in prayer, I would suggest that you even now, even today, consider what do I need to discipline my life in prayer? Your disciples. Verse six, or number six says, what is the most helpful new way you could strengthen your church? Pray for your leaders. Pray for each member of each family. Number eight, what's the most important way you will, by God's grace, try to make this year different from last year? Pray, pray, fast and pray. And see, see what God will do. Number nine, what one thing could you do to improve your prayer life this year? That's what I'm asking you to think about, to consider. So let's begin this year by establishing a pattern of prayer. And your elders felt that this book would, would be helpful, so there's a box somewhere in here or in my car. Anyway, I'll get it out. Each head of household, I'd like you to take this book when you leave. This is called The Power of Prayer Handbook, compiled by Peter Hammond. Excellent. Short. It's uh, very helpful, very well laid out. You should go through it with your family. It will not take you long, but it's a great overview of prayer. Please don't forget that. Let's train ourselves in prayer. We are called to train ourselves in godliness. We are to train ourselves in prayer for the glory of the Lord and the building of his kingdom. And brothers and sisters, if you'd turn to the front page of your notes now, I'd like to ask you to pray with me, with meaning. The pattern the Lord taught all his disciples, which we are part of, he taught us to use this pattern so that we would learn how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we ask that you would make us a praying church, one that hallows your name and prays for your kingdom and according to your will. Thank you that we can pray in Jesus' name and because of his redemption, empower us and lead us by your Holy Spirit to pray in faith. Forgive us, Lord, for prayerlessness. We repent and desire to know you and see your mighty power work in us and through us as we pray. And we ask this through our intercessor and our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.